Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Hello, and welcome to Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, Director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Voting is a fundamental democratic right that upholds the principle that political power derives from the consent of the governed. On today's episode, we're considering how suffrage, the right to vote, functions as a mechanism by which citizens participate in the democratic process, and we'll discuss what it means to have those rights taken away as well. We are joined by Dr. Pippa Holloway. Dr. Holloway is the Cornerstone Chair in History and the Chair of the History Department at the University of Richmond. Her current research examines the right of those charged with crimes or convicted of felonies to testify in court. She is the author of Living in Infamy, Felon Disfranchisement and the History of American Citizenship and Sexuality, Politics and Social Control in Virginia, 1920 to 1945. She has a Ph.D. in history from The Ohio State University. Pippa, welcome to Consider the Constitution. Thanks for the warm welcome. I'm super happy to be here. Today, we're speaking to you from James Madison's Montpelier, the fourth president of the United States and father of the Constitution. When Madison was thinking about what our government would look like, he was concerned about the potential dangers of majority rule and the need to balance majority power with the protections for minority rights. And he was grappling with this concern that decisions made by a majority vote without any kinds of checks or balances could lead to tyranny of the majority. The system of government that he and others created during the summer of 1787 with the drafting of the U.S. Constitution is designed to reflect the will of the people through a system of representative democracy. The Constitution, however, was a work in progress at that time, and ambiguity still surrounded how citizenship was defined, as well as who had the right to vote. Now, the government finally provided some clarification around this in the mid-19th century. Pippa, what is prompting the focus on citizenship and voting rights in the 1850s and 60s in particular? Well, the biggest change, obviously, in the United States in the 1860s is the end of slavery. Of course, with the Emancipation Proclamation and then the end of the Civil War, slavery becomes outlawed in the United States. And we had a large body of people who had been previously excluded from many of the rights of citizenship, indeed, most of the rights of citizenship, who were now no longer enslaved as per the 13th Amendment which extended the Emancipation Proclamation to the entire United States and ended slavery except for punishment for crime. So we have this new new population that is no longer enslaved and their citizenship status, though, is ambiguous. And that's a little bit of a hard concept to understand for us, I think, today. In other words, just because you're no longer enslaved doesn't mean that you are a citizen of the United States. It just means you're not enslaved anymore. And so one of the critical things that has to be decided in the 1860s is who are these new Americans and what is their status? And that's a question that gets answered roughly in two different ways. One group of people, predominantly white Southerners, who say, 
well, these people are no longer slaves, but that doesn't mean anything else. And then there's another group of people, again, predominantly, but of course not exclusively, white Northeastern Republicans and their African-American allies in the North and their growing allies who are the formerly enslaved people in the South who say, well, it's not just that we, they are no longer slaves. It's that we want to be citizens of the United States. We want equality of citizenship. And so this group of people, the combined intelligence, genius and will of formerly enslaved people combined with their allies in large, again, largely in the Northeast, brought us ultimately the 14th Amendment, which defines citizenship. And one of those components of citizenship, you asked me specifically about voting. And one of the questions in the drafting of the 14th Amendment is what does this mean for voting rights? And are these new citizens going to have a quality of access to the ballot under the 14th Amendment? And it's interesting to think today that the idea of citizenship is not thoroughly outlined in the original Constitution as it was signed and ratified in the late 1700s. In fact, we have some reference to residency requirements in the Constitution in those seven articles. But again, we don't really see citizenship as a concept defined legally until the 14th Amendment. True. And the converse of that also makes the pre-14th Amendment or even the early period interesting because with this less articulated understanding of citizenship came the fact that non-citizens were allowed to vote in many ways prior to the 14th Amendment. In some states, for example, if you simply met the property requirement, you could vote even if you weren't a citizen of the United States. In other states, you could vote if you were planning on becoming a citizen and had sort of started to fill out the paperwork or had expressed this desire to a judge. So just as we think of citizenship and the 14th Amendment as including people into the rights of citizenship, to some extent, this period, and it's not simply the 14th Amendment because there's some non-citizen voting after that, but this is a period in which there's also exclusions from the rights of citizenship for people who are not actually citizens in ways they had been included before. That's an interesting point to consider when you look at the women's suffrage movement, for example. You have wealthy white women collectively gathering to demand the vote in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. And as you mentioned, voting rights are kind of decentralized at that time. People are voting in counties or states where there aren't collective or broad overarching federal laws. And so we do see, for example, some women voting because they inherit property. This is by no means happening broadly across the country, but there are some instances of this. So it's fascinating to consider how the 14th Amendment, as you said, defines rights, but then can also be exclusionary in some ways. Yeah. And, you know, that again was an intent of the framers of the Constitution was to devolve a lot of the definitions of who gets to vote to the states like these are or even not even just to the states in many cases to localities, you know, municipalities would have their own suffrage process. Sometimes it would vary by election in the early 19th century. So, for example, anyone who was a property holder could vote for school board, whereas you had to be, say, a citizen to vote for the legislature or things like that. And that actually introduces to me some interesting questions for the present. So, for example, We now, I think almost everywhere, maybe not actually everywhere, but the vast majority of America has the same voting requirements for all elections. Whether you're voting for mayor or dog catcher or president or senator, it's the same electorate and the same rules. But there are some places and there are some arguments that that shouldn't necessarily be true. 
So what if you live in a place, you pay taxes there? Let's say your kids go to school there. You pay property taxes, you pay sales taxes, but you're not a citizen of the United States. Should you get to vote for school boards, say, if your kids are also enrolled in school? Should you get to vote for city council or (laughs) the earlier example, dog catcher, which I don't think is usually an elected office. But what does it mean? So we think of citizenship, we've been talking about citizenship as a sort of legalistic frame, right? Like how it's defined by the Constitution, how it's defined by statute. But we might also think of citizenship as to some extent, a function of community. If you live here, if you're part of our neighborhood, if you pay taxes here, if your kids go to school here, is there a sort of social citizenship that you might have acquired in that process that might then give you certain kinds of rights to decide the leadership of your community, say? So to recap, the 13th Amendment that you referenced, that outlaws slavery. The 14th Amendment defines the rights of citizenship and due process. And then we have the 15th Amendment, which is an important suffrage amendment. Can you tell us more about that and its kind of correlation with the 13th and 14th Amendments? Absolutely. So the 15th Amendment is passed later in the 1870s when it becomes clear that the 14th Amendment had insufficient protection for black men's voting rights. And of course, we're emphasizing men here because women do not are not granted the right to vote. That is debated in the context of the 14th and 15th Amendment and ultimately set aside by the men that were writing those amendments. But the 15th Amendment comes up quite simply because of the level of disfranchisement of black men in the aftermath of the 14th Amendment in the South. These were techniques that were racially unneutral. So, for example, black men that tried to vote face violence. There were also literacy tests and poll taxes. Most people listening to this probably know the sort of litany of techniques that were used to erode black men's voting rights in the South. And so the 15th Amendment was an effort to limit that, to guarantee the right to vote was equal to all regardless of color or race. And that was the hope by the drafters of that um, was that this would fully enfranchise black men. And the story, as many of us know, is, of course, not so, that there were soon ways to evade the 15th Amendment, everything from the grandfather clauses to rewritten literacy tests that were, of course, facially neutral. They were applied to all people, but they were enforced disparately and a whole host of other requirements, including what I write about, which is efforts to disfranchise people based on the conviction of crime. And the ratification of the 15th Amendment is a very interesting story in terms of what social movements at that time look like. So leading up to the 15th Amendment, there was an effort between black men and white women to have universal suffrage in America. And with the passage of the 15th Amendment, white women feeling left out kind of broke off and started this other branch of the suffrage movement for women. And it takes decades and decades for the passage of the 19th Amendment, which grants women suffrage rights. And that effort, as we talked about a little bit earlier, when we look at how voting becomes a federally designated act, women are trying to pass suffrage laws at the state level. And it's not until the late 1800s and early 1900s that women say we don't just need state by state suffrage. We need an amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing our voting rights. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what the landscape politically 
looks like at the turn of the 20th century and what's happening in regard to voting rights broadly across the country? Yeah, the landscape of voting rights in the late 19th and early 20th century is super complicated and varied. That's an interesting way to frame the question, actually. I mean, one thing to remember, of course, is that the women's suffrage movement was not a singular movement and that there was a large number of black women who sort of saw through the supposed paradox that had been set up in the context of the 15th Amendment's drafting and passage, which was to say that as black women, they realized that discrimination on the basis of race or sex in access to the vote was disabling to our nation in a sense. And so they were an important part of the suffrage movement although, of course, not accepted by all the white women suffrage activists. So that, that's part of the landscape of suffrage in the late 19th century is black women that are pushing for equality across race and gender for the vote. Of course, in the late 19th century, I mean, it, the stories go on and on in terms of, of course, women um, that are advocating for voting rights at the state level. There's, of course, a huge question in some parts of the United States during that time with regard to Mormon or voting by members of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. There's an effort to disfranchise LDS church members in some parts, particularly of the Southwest. Sometimes that was actually framed as disfranchisement for crime um, with the argument that polygamy was a crime and therefore people that committed polygamy. So they're saying, well, we're not discriminating against LDS church members. We're prohibiting voting rights or criminal behavior. So that's a whole other part of that. You asked about the landscape of the late 19th century. Another thing that's happening in that period is a shift in America's immigrant population. So we have a growing number of immigrants coming to the United States from Southern and Eastern Europe. And some of the layers of nativism as well as racism gets layered onto them. So there's increasing concern across the United States with expanding voting rights or allowing voting by this new group of immigrants who many people view with suspicion. Of course, in the southern United States, there's an effort to constitutionally disfranchise African-Americans. An effort sort of at least symbolically culminates with Virginia's 1901 constitution, which sort of is the death blow to voting in Virginia with techniques ranging from literacy tests to poll taxes to felon disfranchisement to everything else that severely limits the right to vote both in Virginia and other states. So I could go on and on about that moment there that you noted, but certainly the question of who votes is a very much alive in the 1890s. And thank you for raising the point. You're absolutely right. Black women are kind of rendered invisible because they are both advocating for suffrage for women, but also for civil and human rights for all African-Americans. And so they are pushing these various causes. And as a matter of fact, there's a suffragist, Nanny Helen Burroughs, who is originally from Orange, Virginia, near here at Montpelier. So we do have some important suffrage history connected with our community as well. That's wonderful. To continue our conversation about the 19th Amendment, can you tell us more about what the process looked like in terms of women gaining suffrage rights and barriers or challenges they faced once they were granted those voting rights? Yeah, the, the moment of the passage of the 19th Amendment um, or the, the enforcement of it, the enactment of it, was really exciting in some ways in just a logistical way, which is kind of what you're leaning into with your question, because suddenly a whole pile of people got to vote. And so they all had to go register. And so 
If you could imagine the logistics of that, what if tomorrow the number of voters that needed to register essentially doubled? And so they had to set up extra hours in the voting offices. They had to hire extra staff. And then that brought in, particularly in southern states, another set of challenges because black women also wanted the right to vote. And so, for example, here in Richmond, Virginia, a group of African-American women showed up to register to vote. And there was a couple of really stressful days there because they hadn't thought to segregate the registration office and all government offices were segregated. And so black women sort of came in and said, hey, I want to register. And the, a number of the white women kind of flipped out and said, no, 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 we have to keep this segregated. And so then they had to set up a separate office for the registration of black women or maybe separate hours for their registration. So just in terms of logistics, those first couple of elections brought a bunch of new challenges. Now you have twice as many voters. You have to have twice as many voting stations. Voting is going to take longer. There's like a lot that just goes into the sort of daily enforcement of that amendment. And I want to note as well that while the 19th Amendment granted suffrage rights to women, it didn't actually enfranchise all women. For example, Native American women, indigenous women are not considered citizens until the mid-1920s. So they're not able to participate in elections at that time. Exactly. Yes, there are. And that's an important way to remember the 19th Amendment. I like to think of the 19th Amendment as more of a beginning than an end. And a lot of times people think about it as the end and it gives us this sort of sense of triumph. And certainly the 19th Amendment was a triumph. I don't want to take that away from it at all. At the same time, there was still work to be done in the aftermath. You're right. The Native American women, until we get the Indian Citizenship Act, were not considered citizens and unable to vote. African-American women, although the examples that I gave a minute ago suggest that there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm by black women for the right to vote, there remained significant challenges for them. Although one of the interesting things about black women in voting in the poll taxes is that for men, in some states, the poll taxes were cumulative. So if a black man had wanted to register to vote in 1920 in some southern states, he would have had to pay sort of 10 to 15 years of back poll taxes. But black women, because they'd just gotten the right to vote, didn't have a backlog of poll taxes. So to some extent, for some black women, it was a more realistic option to be able to vote than for the men in their families although there were still significant obstacles to black women's suffrage. And then the other group that people often don't think about, which I've written some about in the 1920s, is women with prior felony convictions or disfranchising convictions. And they, too, with the 19th Amendment, many of them celebrated their now potential to vote and then realized pretty quickly they couldn't because they had former convictions. And I've um, researched the stories of a number of women who in the 1920s and 1930s, particularly the 1920s, worked with renewed vigor to get their voting rights back in order to get pardons or restorations of citizenship. In some cases, I found records of letters from their husbands, which was an interesting thing because it's the idea that men are the gatekeepers of citizenship was still in the minds of many. So you'd have letters from men saying, you know, my wife made a terrible mistake many years ago and she seeks the right to vote. And then I have a little evidence that over time that shifts. And by the 1930s and 40s, more of the women themselves are asking for the right to vote. And more interestingly, women are signing each other's petitions. So in order to get your voting rights back in those days, you often had to collect signatures from your neighbors saying that you were a worthy citizen. 
And the earliest petitions from women that I found were all signed by men. But by the 1930s, you have more women signing each other's petitions for citizenship. So to me, that suggests this kind of growing sense, not simply with the 19th Amendment that women get the right to vote, but over the course of the 20s and 30s, that women are increasingly seeing themselves as equal citizens to men, which is kind of more of a cultural change than strictly a policy change. And bringing our conversation up to today, what does it mean to have the right to vote in America in the 21st century? You know, one of the lessons I take from the past is that, and it's one of the lessons from the 19th Amendment, is not to sit back and be triumphant about our voting rights. That our democracy is one that is always changing. Our democracy is one that is always working to fulfill its great promise. And what I learned from studying the 19th Amendment was not to be triumphalist and assume that everything is great now and all of our problems are solved. I think we all need to continue to think about our elections, our democracy, and our voting rights. We need to continue to articulate them. We need to continue to think what the right to vote means, how we understand it, what is best for our nation in terms of who is included in our electorate and in our policy. And so I think it's important to remember when you look back at the span of time, there's never been a fixed moment in which we've gotten to the finish line of our access to the franchise or truly of our understanding of the Constitution. And so for me, we have to continue to be engaged and think hard about what our rights are and how we articulate and defend them. That's a good reminder for myself and for our listeners that democracy does not uphold itself. We are all active participants. And... It's important not only to know our history, but to be involved. Dr. Pippa Holloway, it was such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. This has been wonderful. And thank you to everyone listening to the podcast today. I hope you'll subscribe and share the show with your friends and family. And please join us again in two weeks as we consider the Constitution. 